Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right, that of course is a song by Bert, by Bert Bacharach and Hal David. Bert Bacharach died last week after a mere 70 years of writing songs. So total flash in the pan there. Um, and we are going to talk about him today with a whole bunch of people that we already know. Uh, and we already know we'll have interesting things to say. Our primary guide, though, our Virgil leading us through the underworld, will be, as usual, Steve Metcalf, founder and director of the Garmini Concert Series at the University of Hartford's uh, Heart School, now in its 13th season, and, of course, a, a music, a writer about music, a composer of music. Um, he is music, and he writes the songs, uh, and he's with us now. So I should just say that over many decades, you and I have been together listening to and and sometimes uh, singing and playing together and just kind of just geeking out about Burt Bacharach for a really long time. True or false? True. And do you know that in all those years, I had never noticed, as I did just a moment ago, that the song you played as the uh, intro to the show, Are You There With Another Girl, we got all the way into that song and we had not landed yet on a tonic chord on the on the root chord of that tune which is i mean for for geeking out that's uh, i think that's a worthy observation well but, it's, it's also a very weird song structurally right is that is this a verse is this a chorus <laughs> you know there's no it, it it doesn't it just sort of happens right it kind of first of all lyrically kind of starts in the middle of a situation and and it's it just kind of goes along, but I'm not really quite sure I could explain structurally how it goes along. Well, it's almost like somebody made him a bet that he couldn't write a whole tune like that and have a tonic chord in it because because uh, there isn't one. I mean, I I guess I I guess I'm assuming that if we get to the very end of the song, there will be one, but there there wasn't in the you know 45 seconds you just played, which is pretty unusual. It's unusual, but it's not unusual. I mean, this is a guy. Not for who, him. Yeah, not for him. Exactly. That's where I was guiding you. Here's a guy who I think has this kind of superficial reputation as this guy who just a brill building guy who just pops out these pop hits, you know, one after another. And they're all terrific and singable and hummable, you know, but that kind of doesn't really cover the ground very correctly because these songs are deceptive in, in their complexity sometimes. Well, yeah, I mean, deceptive hardly captures it. I mean, it is true that I guess if you go back far enough, you know, he had uh, he had a few real early Brill Building songs like Perry Como's uh, 
what was it called? Magic Moments, you know, mm-hmm. which is a pretty orthodox song. And and that Marty Robbins song is, is you know, pretty much a standard. But it didn't take him long before. And I guess it was really when he started hooking up with Dion, you know, that, I mean, he has said that, that uh, her versatility and her musicianship, I think, led him in directions that maybe... I won't say he wouldn't have gone, but maybe he got there a lot quicker than he would have otherwise, you know? Yeah, I also think, and maybe when Paula West gets here, we'll talk a little bit more about this, that it's also Hal David. There's something about that particular collaboration. You know, yeah, he was writing, you know, in the 50s and early 60s with other lyricists. I came across a song called Keep Away From Other Girls by Helen Shapiro today that he did with Bob Hilliard. You know, and these... You know, a lot of these songs, they sound like maybe another person in the building could write them. But somehow or other, when he starts with Hal David, they start to get, and I agree with the Dionne Warwick part, too. They all, it all starts to get very adventurous and, and starts to remind you more of kind of the American songbook. Well, true. And, and we might as well sort of deal with that uh, here since you brought it up. You know, I mean, you you... Well, Colin, and we've talked about this a million times, you know, that, that there are those people who insist that the American songbook kind of came to an end when rock and roll arrived. And if if there's if there's one antidote to that mistaken belief, uh, and, and there are many, actually, but if there's one above all others, perhaps it's it's got to be Bert. Bachrach, I, I knowing that we were going to do this, I, I just ran through the list a couple of days ago. I mean, he has, I would say, at least 30 songs that deserve to be called standards. And um, I'm not sure there's anybody else who can make that claim, to be honest. I think I mean, not, the, yeah. not the Beatles, not, you know, Steve, I don't think. And, uh, and, and yet, because of the range of artists that sing Bach Rock stuff, uh, I, I think he might be the king of post-rock standards. Right. I mean, there's like a whole subgenre of just Brazilian or samba type adaptations uh, of backrack songs. There are, you know, yeah, the kind of people like the Barbara Cook kind of people who sing American standards. And I mean, House is Not a Home. I think there's like 184 versions of it on this one site that I looked at that keeps track of things like that. And and But I, the other thing that struck me today, particularly I was just sort of letting the algorithm of Tidal, my uh, streaming service, kind of just you know, surf me along. They're just, you know, you can really geek out on Backrack and not know all the songs. There's just a real lot of them. I found one uh, today that popped up called To Wait for Love. I The Jackie DeShannon version popped up. I discovered later Jay and the Americans released it for starters. I thought, how, how, how do I not know this song? But there's just a lot of them, right? Well, I think, first of all, to back up, I, I'm not sure how many just ordinary music listeners even to this day uh, are going to light up when you say house is not a home. I mean, musicians do and jazz musicians especially do. Um, but, but, you know, the, the songs of Bachrock that were the big hits, you know, say a little prayer and so on uh, are, are not necessarily the ones that are, that are of maximum interest to other singers and, and certainly to jazz people, you know, so it, it 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 I think it it shows again the range and the versatility of this man. 
Right. Uh, you know, actually, Pat, Kat, this is a, a clip 03. Let's remind people, since Metcalf just pointed out that maybe not everybody lights up over a house is not a home. Clip 03. A chair is still a chair, even when there's no one sitting there. But a chair is not a house, and a house is not a home, when there's no one there to hold you tight, and no one there you can kiss goodnight. This, I think if there's a masterpiece in the bunch, th- this is the one, right? I mean, there certainly are pop masterpieces that people love, as you say, more than this. But I, if there's one that people are going to be doing 100 years from now, I think it might be this one. I, I have to agree. And, of course, you mentioned Bridges the other day. I mean, a few minutes ago. I mean, the bridge to this song is so, it's just so overwhelming that every time you hear it, you can't quite believe that he got away with it but uh it's a brilliant bridge it's, a, it's, a it's tricky too there's a you can wrong foot that bridge very easily there's a couple of notes that you have to watch out for um but yeah it's a it's just a, a tremendous piece of songwriting and, and i was wondering actually listening to that whether whether that was a bach rock arrangement because it certainly sounds like it is yeah i don't know this is the brook brook benton version yeah, which well, I, I think right. is the first one ever released as on record but you know, the other thing about Bachrock, you know, is that sometimes, like, even his kind of dumb songs, like, and I'm thinking in particular <laughs> of What's New Pussycat. The thing Ooh, is, I, knew gonna, I knew you were going to say but, that. But it's also, it's it could be like an art song almost. It's so weird. Uh, and, and, I mean, musically so weird that, you know, that there's something kind of amazing about it. I, I agree, actually, and I, I have always found it to be a sort of Kurt Vilean song in its, uh, I don't know, I mean, it's almost got sort of anarchy built into it, you know, and it's 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 not a song that I guess people cover particularly, but, <laughs> you know, but, it, but it's really a very clever song, and it has, it has absolutely no antecedents, I think, in terms of these weird little chromatics that, that make up the chorus of that song. <laughs> And, and, and look, people seem to like it. I mean, you know. Well, yeah. No, I, it's, I, I don't think. It's its own charm. I don't think anybody's unfond of it exactly. You do sort of wonder that like, the, the two of them are sitting in the room. <laughs> you know, I feel like they're going, do you think we're done yet? Is the song, have we finished the song? Do we need to do something else with it? It's No, actually, let's just, let's just have it be like this. All right. So we are going to add to our conversation now uh, Paula West, um, a jazz and cabaret singer uh, and one of my favorite jazz and cabaret singers and somebody I was lucky enough to get to know many, many years ago. Uh, and first of all, um, well, maybe what we should do. Uh, while Paula kind of settles in, uh, is play a cut 04, Cat. Paula's going to talk a little bit about the song I'll Never Fall in Love Again. This is, once again, a Dionne Warwick version 04. Okay. 
All right. Unfortunately, we can't play these songs in their entirety because we were incredibly pressed for time. But Paula West, welcome to our conversation. Hi. Hey, Colin. How are you doing? Good. So you and I met down in Waterford at the O'Neill Symposium there. And I remember a day where uh, the legendary actor Max Showalter came in to talk to us. We were getting a lot of instruction down there at the time. But he, yes. said, he said a thing that stuck with me. He said, he said, you know, Dick Rogers used to say, don't sing my music. Sing Oscar's words. And, and I, was thinking wow. of, I was thinking about that with Hal David and, and Backrack today. You know, that there's a way... Like that song, all these songs, the words are tremendous and they kind of will carry you along. But what what, what did you want to say about that song? Uh, I'll I'll never fall in love again. Yeah, I I just have always loved it. I've uh, my favorite renditions are with Dean Warwick, also with Aretha Franklin, among others. Um, I it's just a great tune, and you know. You know, his uh, the announcement of his death last week, uh, it shook me up. I had never performed any of the music anymore, but I was getting ready to open a show, which I opened last weekend, and we threw a Bird Backrack song, and I threw in I'll Never Fall in Love Again. It was a Valentine-themed show, but I did it, <laughs> and the people love to hear it. It's just, uh, the collaboration between, and that song was written sort of last minute. For the show promises promises because they needed uh david merrick wanted to have a song where people were going to go out and hum you know <laughs> after they left the, the show and actually bird Bacharach was in the hospital at that time he was not unable to get to a piano how david had already written the lyrics and when he got out he said that was the fastest tune he ever composed Makeup uh, thoughts about the song. I know this is one of the songs where you think the intro is kind of, kind of the musical uh, instrumental inst- uh, uh, intro is kind of interesting. Well, yeah, I I, I did give you a few songs that uh, that have instrumental intros, which first of all, not many pop tunes do these days. I don't mean a a vocal uh, verse or or that sort of thing, which which nobody writes, but. Um, a, a lot of what made, I think, Bachrock's tunes feel kind of grander than the average pop tune was that they, first of all, they had orchestrations that featured big orchestras with a lot of timpani and so on. But they also had these these instrumental introductions, as that song does, and as a lot of Dion's songs do, like Don't Make Me Over and Say a Little Prayer, that, that they established themselves with these four or eight bar, occasionally a little bit longer, but not not very long. Uh, very, very strong musical themed intros, which interestingly enough, never appear in the song. I mean, that little lick that starts uh, I'll Never Fall in Love Again never again appears in the song, you know, and it just is there to establish the tone and the spirit and the basic feel of the song, which I think is... An interesting piece of of Black Rock's chemistry there. Yeah, Kat, let's play O one here. We'll just play the very beginning of O one. Uh, this is uh, you'll never get to heaven. Uh, we're just going to play that this little lick at the beginning, and then you can fade it. Go ahead. So that that's an even sung 
intro right. that's nowhere else in the song, right? Right, exactly. And, you know, I mean, if you just heard that opening instrumental lick, you could say, wow, that's that's like a nice uh, Joe Beam song or something. You know, I mean, it has the it has the musical, I think, heft to be a song in its own right. But it doesn't appear in the in the proper song once we get into it. Uh, except, as you probably remember, at the very end, mm-hmm. as a lot of these do, he, he brings them back and forms a, you know, kind of a, I don't know, like a little tone poem or something. But, but, um, but it's, but it's not just a, it's not just a, a, a rhythmic or chordal lead into the song. It's, it's a little statement in its own right, which is, which is really interesting. So Paula West, t- tell me a little bit more about your relationship uh, to Bacharach's music. What do you, what do you hear in it? Uh, what is it that, that you like about it? it, it everything just comes together and, and it was such a vast catalog, catalog of works. And, you know, I grew up listening to these numbers and, you know, in, in films and uh, recordings. And I always loved, you know, if if you're really, if you want to wallow in sorrow, just put on Dionne Warwick's <laughs> Greatest Hits. <laughs> if, you, if you get dumped or something like that. But, no, it's just wonderful material. And probably another really big favorite of mine is Walk On By. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, it, and, and to that point, I mean, once again, we're talking a little bit about David uh, as well as Bacharach. But, you know, Paula, there are those, you know, A House Is Not a Home has these just moments that kind of stop your heart, you know, with just yes. how much sadness there is. Or I was even just, you know, noticing the line that's going to come up a little bit later in the show. Um, I will never be free. You'll always be a part of me. There's mm. there's a sense yeah. of the imprisonment that you have. If you can't, I mean, they really get at that, that, that idea of heartbreak. I can't live without this person and I can't have this person. Yes. It, it, it's just beautiful material. So, and, and do you have any sort of, I mean, you're right that there's a way that there's a totality here. There's a way that the, the song comes together and drives itself along and the lyrics fit it all so beautifully. Is it musically, as a, for a singer, particularly challenging to, to do this material? I mean, for example, when you added that showed the song to your set the other day, was that a, a big jump for you or did it come pretty easily? It came pretty easily because... I've listened to his music all my life, mm-hmm. all my life. And, uh, you know, I, I am definitely going to, uh, pers- I've always wanted to pursue the material. I said, I got to get to that one day. <laughs> and of course, uh, his passing was a, a catalyst for that. So it's just, it's just, it's just so great. And I will definitely be, uh, doing some more, uh, of his compositions, he and Hal David's compositions in the future. Uh, how could you resist? You know, good music and good music, great music is very flexible. As yes. you know, you could see by all the other artists that uh, have uh, gotten through his material. All right, we're going to take a little break here. Uh, thanks so much to Paula West. Great to hear your voice back, you. on, back on our show again. Uh, Steve Metcalf is staying with me the entire way. We'll take a break. We're going All to come right. back with Gene Seymour. When there's a moon, I'll something to see how the fellas follow the girls. They're all in search of love. There isn't a lover who 
doesn't discover that if it's made in Paris, you can bet that there is a girl for every boy. Dreams are made in Paris every night. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So one of the people we wanted to talk to uh, is Gene Seymour, writer, professional spectator, pop culture maven, jazz geek, mayor of our annual jazz show, and many other things besides. Uh, and Gene, I knew without having to ask that you would have things to say uh, about Burt Bacharach and Hal David. It sounds like what you really want to talk about is a subject also dear to your friend Steve Metcalf's heart, and that is bridges. Yes, yes, I um. The, the thing that makes popular song popular, I think, isn't just what's up front, but what gets you, what what intervenes. I, I love I love intervals anyway of of all kinds, and uh, you know some of the the thing that I like about Bacharach's bridges. And I guess should we define our terms, or did Steve I think, already do that? I, I have no idea. I should be honest and say we're taping all this stuff kind of out of sequence, so I have right. no. We have either had a very elaborate conversation of bridges, or they haven't come up yet. But you should. Right. We should assume that they haven't come up. Okay. Well, um, a bridge, of course, is that part of the song in between the the, the first lyric that sort of gets you to the to the next to, to the repeat of the of the of the theme, I guess. And um, the, the thing I always thought was great about Bacharach's bridges in, in his songs was that you barely noticed that you were on the bridge when you got there because the themes themselves are, are so, and, and a lot of people have said this over the last week or so, they're so elemental and they're so spare that, you know, that, 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 you, that, that you're, you're, you're almost, you know, surprised by how strong and resilient those 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 melodic braces are and and just how they keep you propped up i mean really really strong melodies and people say well aren't melodies easy no melodies are the hardest thing to sustain i mean if it were easy we'd have a dozen more richard rogers and george gershwins and uh and bird back yeah you know? um yeah I, it is sort of weird because then there are some songs and i think metcalf will make this point uh in, in just a few seconds here uh there are some songs where the bridge is almost better uh and yeah like, one, one less yeah. spell to answer i think maybe might be an example of that uh yeah. just kind of an inspired inspired soaring bridge but one song that you wanted to talk about uh, was there's always something there to remind me actually it's always something there to remind me with theirs right. in parentheses uh right. and this will be we're going to play for folks a little bit of the 1963 demo version by dion warwick 
We should say, Gene, that the reason that this is a demo is that this song was originally released by a guy named Lou Johnson, who That's I think right. was sort of part of the right. Brill Building crowd there. Yeah. And actually, if you listen to the Lou Johnson version, the chorus just rips. And one reason it rips is because Sissy Houston, Dionne Warwick's aunt, and Dee Dee Warwick, her sister, are uh, two of the three session singers on right. that tune. Right. And That's right. I don't know if you had this experience, but, you know, if you work in Hartford, like sooner or later, you interviewed Dionne Warwick because she went to the Hart School and their education program. Uh, I've interviewed her twice. And on one of the occasions, I don't know if it's this song, but she told me there was a song that Backrack and David were going to give away that she wanted and they were going to give it to somebody else. And she said something like, don't make me over, boys, Uh, not using exactly those three words. And that that particular admonition turned into the song "Don't Make Me Over." So maybe it was maybe it was always, uh, always something there to remind me. I don't know. Well, if what it's not you... well, if it's not true, it should be. Yeah. Um, no, but but uh, I you know even when you were playing that, it, it, this is almost exactly sixty years ago, and I still get goosebumps you know listening to that to that to the way that thing just moves. I mean, it, 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 it's so great. Uh, I mean, I I just get psyched by that song and 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 i and again getting back to our original point about the bridge there isn't like much of what you'd call a a bridge or, or an elaborate bridge to this but that transition i will always love you and i mm-hmm. it, it you just kind of it just kind of jump onto that and it just carries you to the to the next to the next rung and uh you know, one of the things that I think people don't think about when they think about, you know, songwriting of the 60s is is the sheer momentum in those songs. Because, you know, this, it was the era of, you know, you know, AM radio was was sort of sort of ruled the world in those days. And you had to get what you had to say and get it done and get it out fast. And And being able to work within those corners was what that generation of songwriters, the Brill Building songwriters, uh, excelled at. And, uh, you know, what I love about this song and many of the others from that era is, is just how how they got, how they went about their business, but it never, but, it's, but it stayed with you because it wasn't simple. It wasn't easy. It was, 
it 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 was it was it was de deceptive ease is what I always think about when I think about Bacharach's music. And uh, so that was Gene Seymour. Now I'm back with Steve Metcalf. I'm really really we're on tight clock here today. So I don't know what you want to talk about next or whether you want to say, do you want to say more about Bridges at this point or did we cover well, that? Not necessarily, but I would like to say a word listening to that and listening to Gene. Uh, I'd like to say a word about Dion Warwick because, you know, I'm quite sure that the notated manuscript or whatever she was working from in that demo only, only very loosely suggested, for example, that great key change where she goes up a half yeah. step and she kind of climbs her way up the ladder into the next key. I'm, I'm sure that she was uh, producing that out of her own head, which which I think we have to acknowledge her talent and her, you know, you know her real collaborativeness with, with Bachrock and David to create what they created. Because I think without her, they, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have gone those places. I, I agree. And there's also a way in which those songs, they need to sound like you're singing very melodically with, as you say, all these really interesting modulations and stuff. But they also have to sound like you're talking. Um, there's something about those songs and that she's able to do that, right? When she's really on her game singing one of their songs, she she sounds like she's singing and talking at the same time. I know. And actually, I, I was just listening. I was driving up from New York today and on the car, believe it or not, okay, are you there with another girl came on and she sings as you as you know that song are you there with another girl instead of me and there are these hesitations mm -hmm. between those words as if she's sobbing and she can't quite get the whole sentence out without taking a couple of breaths in there and it's it's really you know all hail to dion i think for for bringing lives on the other hand you know and some of these songs are difficult and don't sound all that great if the wrong person does them. But let's, we should also acknowledge that, you know, he wrote Only Love Can Break a Heart uh, for Gene Pitney and The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance, right? And and that he he wrote, I, we played a Trini Lopez tune coming out of the A. I mean, he wrote in different styles for different singers, too. It, uh, I mean, we the, these, you know, Backrack David Warwick things are, are the classics, but he was pretty versatile. Yeah, I actually... Uh, talked to Gene Pitney about that years ago, and and it is a shame that there weren't more Bachrock Pitney collaborations because because I think Pitney had, in a way that was as you say very different from Dion's, uh, a, a very um, uh, what shall I say sort of emotionally high pitched voice that that worked well with that with that material, and and uh, you mentioned. Liberty Valance, uh, which is which is a great tune, kind of in its own category. But but he had a song called "True Love Never Runs Smooth." It's a fantastic song, and it and it fits his voice and timbre perfectly. And it's a shame they didn't get to work, or that they for some reason didn't work more uh, together. All right. So we also talked today to uh, Ileana Douglas, the official movie star of the Colin McEnroe show, uh, who appeared in the movie Grace of My Heart, where uh, a back rack and Elvis Costello tune is used in a certain way. So we're going to cut over to Ileana right now. And Ileana, tell us a little bit about this song. Where does it come up in the movie and, and what's happening at that moment? Uh, this comes up, and uh, remember Denise Waverly. Where, you know, she is a song uh, writer. She wants to be a singer, but she's in kind of in the Carol King mode. She's a little bit ahead of her time, and she's never been allowed to sing her own songs. 
And so this is finally an opportunity after she's gone through a, you know, a bad first marriage. She meets um, uh, a new music producer and she's basically auditioning her song, which is why it's so vulnerable and so powerful, but it's meant to be her entire life encapsulated into one song for this man. And by the end of the song, that's how good the song is. <laughs> they fall in love with each other. He not only produces her album, but they get married and they don't live happily ever after, but they do for a while. But that's how good the, the song is the crescendo of the film you know the first these biopics are very challenging you know because you always it's like the first half is amazing and then the second half is a downer so this has to lift us up and show that didn't that my character Denise Waverly is finally being given this opportunity to to show herself so um we should say that you perform this song in the movie. The actual singing is done by by someone else. But um, but you had the opportunity to meet Burt Bacharach uh, under these circumstances. Yes, um, so that, you know that, that was. I mean, it was kind of an interesting thing because I did. I actually performed the song on camera, but the decision was made. I guess they, you know, they didn't. That's their the producer's choice. They didn't they didn't like me singing, which I didn't necessarily agree with. But I was singing. I said, I'm not going to lip sync. I'm going to sing because because as we have been saying about Burt Bacharach's music, you know, it's very personal. And so what we did is I sang, you know, we we did a I sang it and then we had Kristen Vigard come in and do the the vocals. And then I did some little, you know, overdubs over that so it's a little it's a you know the but yes sadly i was not able to perform the song but i think that why the scene works so well is that i was performing it and matt dylan's reaction uh to me i think is genuine and in the moment you know i, I will say but we were just kind of warming up before we became officially on the air taping this thing and yeah you you hit that interval pretty well it's a there's Thank a you. there's a very tough uh, jump there in that song i think that we were at a time in movie making this was you know 1995 96 and the decision was made none of the performers in the film were they made you know matt dillon all of us none of us were actually able to sing our songs now we've crossed into a realm where you know, you have where it doesn't people don't have to be the world's greatest singers, you know, and and but it was an argument I lost. And, you know, that's the way it is. And Look. when I do my one woman show, I'll sing. it. <laughs> Look, they'll let Helena Bonham Carter sing Sweeney to Sweeney Todd. I see the doors are completely open to do. everything. Yes, exactly. So um, we're going to play a little bit of this song right now. We're, this is not the movie version. This, we should say, uh, was the beginning of a collaboration between Elvis Costello and Burt yes. Bacharach. Uh, so from the album uh, Pain from memory here is god give me strength
Elvis is pushing that falsetto, and he has a pretty good, uh, pretty big, pretty big range there. So, at some point, you guys are working on this in a studio. I'm assuming, not on set, but yeah. ba- but Backrack shows up. Talk about what that okay, was like. That, that, I wanted to go back. Just, just something just miraculous is that literally, it was on February 13th, 1996, that Allison Andrews and I were in a studio in the winter in New York City, watching Burt Bacharach and Elvis Costello <laughs> record, uh, you know, record the song uh, in New York. So that's already incredible. But what I wanted to go back very briefly is that I don't know if people remember that it was Burt Bacharach met Hal David at the Brill Building. <laughs> and that's how they met and that's how they formed their collaboration and that's where many of their early songs were performed and so when we were doing grace of my heart the concept was let's get people from the original brill building and then match them up with people of today but so you know the decision was made they matched them up with elvis costello but here is the interesting rub costello was in ireland Mm-hmm. And Backrack was in Los Angeles. And so, you know, we met with him. We talked about the type of song that, you know, we wanted it to be like. I mean, imagine giving Bert Backrack notes. But anyway, we, you know, we told him. And then we were privileged enough. They had to send each other cassette tapes back and forth. So a lot of these rehearsal tapes, you know, I have in my stash of them practicing um, the you know the song but and that's what was so amazing was that they never met each other until Elvis came over to record but they had developed such a rapport by that point that that's why they continued to um, you know to to uh, to work together all right so I have one more question because you have a dental yes. you have a dental appointment and I don't want that on my conscience <laughs> so that you're late for it I mean um what does Burt Bacharach smell like? I always sort of picture that he must like smell really nice. You know, I don't really think that about a lot of people, but uh, you may, you may well, have no acute memory of this. This is, may not have been a made a Proustian. I mean, here's on you. you know, here's the thing that I think is so interesting about about. I, I mean, I was obsessed with him and I knew everything about him, but I think that for people of our age, it just seems like he was always in the background of our life. But I don't know about if he, if he smells good. The biggest surprise was when we went to his house, two funny things. We went to his house and he, he has horses. 
he really got into raising horses and horse racing. So when we were in his office, along with all the Grammys and Oscars, there's there's all sorts of portraits of racehorses that he's owned over the years. But when he went to record the song, we it was winter in, in uh, New York City, and we were like, you know, we're recording a song just like it's the Brill Building with Elvis Costello. And he comes in and he's wearing the shearling coat you know, with the sheepskin and the snow tousled in his hair, you know. And we were like, we just looked at each other like, does, does he look like he walked off in a, an album cover, you know, <laughs> circa 1969? So he, but, you know, now we, we had heard that he had an eye for the ladies. Nothing like that ever, you know, he was married when we were working with him. But years later, I met and interviewed when I was working for, TCM, I met Angie Dickinson and she said, uh, she goes, you worked with my husband, right? And I said, you mean Burt Bacharach? And she goes, yeah, he liked you. Did he hit on you? <laughs> and I said, I go, I wish. <laughs> I'm sure it was but, an oversight. It was just an oversight on I his part. I said, uh, sadly, uh, no, but. Um, Liana Douglas, you're going to be late for your dental appointment. Okay. Uh, you got to go. Uh, Thank you say, so uh, much. I love you. I love you too. And yes, the official movie star of the Colin McEnroe show, Liana Douglas. And we'll be back. Since I lost the power to breathe that there could ever be an epic ending That song is sung This bell is rung She was the uh, Before we do our final segment here, some thank yous. Let's start with Cat Pastor, our technical producer, uh, and the producer of this episode, Jonathan McPants. This is an episode we had to kind of uh, do a lot of pre-tapes and put it all together really, really fast. So thanks for their patience and their alacrity. And now joining us, uh, yet another member of the Colin McEnroe Show extended family, Noah Behrman, uh, pianist, composer, uh, and educator. His most recent album with Henry Lugo is Alter Ego. Uh, and Noah, first of all, welcome to our Burt Backrack conversation. Thanks, Colin. Thanks so much for having me. So we were, you know, we asked people, you know, pick a song, pick a song and we'll talk about it. Um, I, I think what I'm going to do in this instance is play the song that you picked first and then we can talk a little bit about it. This is I Say a Little Prayer. Uh, we're uh, in particular doing the Aretha Franklin version. Here we go. I'm going to just take a guess people know how this song goes. Um, so 
One little weird thing I want to point out, I know, uh, just lyrically for a second, is that this song is sort of the narration of a day, uh, of a hypothetical day. It came out, uh, I think, in 67. Uh, right around the same time, Glenn Campbell released the song By the Time I Get to Phoenix by our friend Jimmy Webb, which is also kind of the narration of a day. It's kind of a different kind of narration. Uh, but I, I don't know, it was, <laughs> that was maybe like a thing in 1967. But that's not why you picked this song. Say why you picked this song. Because it's awesome, but that's not specific enough. Yeah. Um, I think this was the, I, this was first of all the first song that I was ever super aware of Burt Bacharach's uh, participation in. Not the first one I'd heard, but the first one where that was part of my consciousness. And it was part of my consciousness in part because I loved hearing Aretha's version of this song so much that at some point I tried to figure out the song and realized that at that point in my musical development, I was biting off more than I realized. And it's a really interesting and potent example to me of how there are quirky, challenging for musicians, sometimes uh, asymmetrical elements of Burt's music that don't sound wonky if you're just listening. Like I didn't, it's not like, certain prog rock or uh, other things that are very uh, overtly and gratuitously complicated. It actually is more akin to certain uh, components of modern jazz where someone like Thelonious Monk or Ornette Coleman might come up with something quirky, just that would be quirky to the outside, but it's something where they're just following the trajectory of a musical idea. And then if someone had to write it down, they might notice that there were um, quirks relative to the symmetries that we are accustomed to in most popular music. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a point that Metcalf uh, will be making today as well. That, And I've just noticed it today, just specifically geeking out on certain songs, that these are pop you know, pop hits that you're very used to singing along with on the car radio. And then you don't really think, oh, wow, that doesn't really have a real kind of A, B, A, B, C kind of structure. <laughs> it's like, as you say, he's just kind of following a musical idea. Well, and in this case, the structure is actually fairly yeah. typical, but the time signatures keep shifting. And so, you know, if you weren't trying to dance to it in a um, methodical way, then maybe you wouldn't even notice that. But, and I certainly didn't notice it till I started trying to figure it out. And around that same time, I started checking out the Ahmad Jamal uh, instrumental version and realized that maybe I was not the first person to have realized that there was a certain sophistication in this music. Right. And this, you know, Bacharach, for a guy who was sort of associated with a certain kind of breezy pop, um, he actually seems to have some real traction in the jazz world. And there's an entire Blue Note uh, album of just various jazz artists uh, from that label all doing different uh, Bacharach songs. Jazz musicians are attracted to at least some of this material, right? Yeah, I mean, Stan Getz recorded way back in the 60s, recorded a whole album of Bacharach tunes. There's a great McCoy Tyner album of Bacharach tunes. These are just two examples. Uh, but yeah, they, they not unlike Stevie Wonder, though coming from a different uh, part of the commercial landscape, perhaps, a lot of the songs are using materials that are relevant to the jazz world. And, and because the melodies are so strong, that's a a twofold motivation to dig into the material. 
All right, Steve Metcalf, we have exactly three minutes left. What should we do with them? What, what should we do with our final three minutes together here? I think we should uh, talk for three minutes about songs by Bert that need to be uh, rediscovered, if that's the right word. You know, he, he has some songs that were not bombs, but really didn't get as popular as as Say a Little Prayer or Alfie or those uh, obvious standards. I mean, I think of uh, I think of a song, for example, called "Odds and Ends." Odds and Ends of a Beautiful Love Affair is just a sensational song, and it's a song that uh, I don't think is ever particularly covered or done these days. Um, who, do, who did the original? Because I, I don't even know that song. Dion. Oh, Dion. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, mean, I, I can't guarantee she was the absolute first, but I think she was. And then there's a song that I think you do know called I Just Don't Know What to Do With yep. Myself, uh, a song that has, you know, a special meaning for me. But I, <laughs> uh, you know, I just think it needs to be heard and redone by people a lot more. And I, I hope that's the case. We we talked a few about Gene Pitney and, uh, you know, as, as I think I mentioned, there's a song of Gene's called True Love Never Runs Smooth which I think is a, a tremendous song and, and actually one of one of Hal's great lyrics that, uh, so far as I know, is not really done. And it wasn't even all that big a hit for Gene, for that matter. So I think, you know, in the way that death seems to often do, I think maybe it's, it's a good moment here with Bert's passing to take a look at the whole catalog and see what we maybe overlooked a little bit the first time around. I'll just point people also towards two uh, specific albums um, that that don't have so many kind of rarities or recherche songs, but have them done differently. One of them, I believe, is called "Here I Am." It's uh, by Ronald Isley. What's significant, though, it's a lot of the a lot of your favorites. But Backrack himself um, produced, arranged, and conducted, uh, and and you can really feel it. I mean, the orchestrations are just just powerful and terrific, and the way he would really want them to be. And then a more recent thing is by a young singer named Rumor R U M E R, and her album. We're going to end with a little bit of it. Is this girl's in love with you? It's all Backrack. She brings a kind of nice uh, magic to it. Anyway, uh, speaking of magic, thanks to Steve Metcalf and everybody else, and let's say goodbye with Rumor. If not, I'll just die.